want to begin by asking you a couple of questions today, and they may relate just a little bit to the sermonette by Mr. Lee, as you'll, you'll hear, and we'll get into that in the message as well. Brethren, have you ever felt alone in a trial or in a situation? Have you ever felt hopeless or helpless or even out of control in a given situation? As we celebrate the day of Pentecost tomorrow, we're going to be looking at some tremendous events that God used to begin his church, his New Testament church, a church that we are all a part of almost 2,000 years later. But as we look at the sermon today and we examine the topic of today, brethren, what is one of the powerful lessons that we can learn when we study the New Testament church that began on Pentecost in 31 A.D.? My purpose today, brethren, is to show from the Bible how God is ultimately in control of our lives and how we can find peace and comfort in this truth. If you're looking for a title for the sermon today, I've entitled it, God is in Control. God is in control. It's interesting, listening to the sermonette today, talking about Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, scientist, physicist, astrophysicist that I personally enjoy listening to when I can tolerate him. Uh, brilliant man uh, from worldly standards, but as was pointed out in the sermonette, um, some things about him really can be annoying because he discards truth. He discards evidence. And much of the world does that today, doesn't it? Those who do recognize a real God oftentimes don't recognize how involved he is or wants to be in our lives. I want to start out with a couple of quotes here today. The first one is from our booklet, Who Controls the Weather, written by Dr. Roderick C. Meredith. Page one, Dr. Meredith wrote, as our world increasingly seems to be growing out of control, we can no longer afford to ignore the truth. For the Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth and all things, is trying to get our attention. He is letting us know through powerful weather catastrophes, earthquakes, and events happening in the world around us that he is in charge. So as we look around the world, certainly not every single weather catastrophe is something that he has created, but certainly he's allowing them. And we'll do that more and more as we approach the end of the age. Dr. Meredith, in that quote, pointed out God's involvement in the weather. But what about our lives directly? Let me quote from him again, this time in a Living Church News editorial from January, February 2012. The editorial was entitled, Go Deeper in Conversion and Faith. Dr. Meredith wrote, Often we fail to recognize how God is in overall charge of events that are happening in the world and even our lives. Certainly he allows many events to happen in the world that he may not directly cause. 
He is, as we know, allowing terrible storms and earthquakes and other events to humble people and is allowing human beings to go their own way for the present 6,000-year age until Christ returns. As we come even closer to the final events of this age, we need to be very sensitive to God's direct intervention in world affairs and in our lives. We need to be even more mindful that, as Jesus said, quote, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows, unquote. And he quoted there from Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. Continuing with Dr. Meredith's comment, he says, Our Father in heaven is in total charge of this universe, and he intervenes in any situation he chooses. As we are his own begotten children, he knows everything about us, even the thoughts of our minds and our hearts. It is important that we develop a deep sensitivity and awareness of that fact. It is vital that we truly commune with God on a regular basis, far more profoundly than most of us have been doing. It is vital that we constantly ask ourselves, what would Jesus really do in this situation? God is, brethren, ultimately in control, and we are not completely on our own. We've got to know that. We've got to know that deep down inside of who we are. I'm going to take a minute here and look at how God is in control of the world and in control of world leaders, ultimately. If you would turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We're not going to spend a lot of time in this portion of the sermon because I want to spend time in how God is in control in our lives. But he is involved in world affairs. He does lift up kings and set them down. Daniel chapter 2. And we'll read verses 21 and 22 here. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and he and light dwells with him. But he removes kings and he raises up kings. Our God has a hand in the world and in world affairs. And as we heard in the sermonette today, he will bring his prophecies to fulfillment. That's one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why he has a hand in what's going on in the world. Daniel chapter 4, if you turn back a page or two with me. Daniel chapter 4, we're going to read it verses 16 and 17 momentarily. You'll recall Nebuchadnezzar, this pompous king who was very full of himself, had a dream. And the interpretation of his dream was that he would lose his senses for seven years. And he would eat grass in the field like, like a cow. <clears throat> and so here is this uh, prophecy that we see breaking in in verse 16. It says, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. Verse 
and, and uh, let seven times pass over him, or seven years. This decision is by decree of the watchers and sent the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know. And note this, in order that the living may know. Why was this to happen? So that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. In these two verses in Daniel, God was making very plain to the people at that time and certainly to us that God does reign in the kingdoms of men. No, he he doesn't manipulate every single decision and every single event. But he reigns in such a way so that what takes place will fulfill his will. He does lift up kings and he does set down kings. And as an aside, that's one of the reasons why we don't vote in God's church. Because God knows what he's doing. He is the one who raises up and sets down kings. And the last thing we would want to do is to vote against God's will, isn't it? Certainly we couldn't change God's will. God's will will happen. He does reign supreme. But we don't want to place ourselves in a position where we are at odds with God's perspective and what God wants to bring to pass. So God, briefly here, as we've demonstrated just from a couple of scriptures, does have a hand in world affairs and with leaders of the world. But brethren, God also works in the lives of human beings, especially his first fruits, which are depicted and pointed out and highlighted by this feast we will celebrate tomorrow, the Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of First Fruits. God's first fruits have been chosen, they have been sanctified, they have been set apart for something very special. And it's in our lives that He wants to reign supreme and that He will have control, especially as we allow it. Let's take some time in the sermon now and review some scriptures that I think many of you are familiar with to bring to the forefront of our minds once again that God does work in our lives. He is in control. He does not leave us alone. He will not leave us or forsake us. He is there for each and every one of us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It was mentioned in the announcements, the handout for Mr. Nathan's Bible study that deals with some of the names of God. God's names teach us about him. God's names tell us about him. They give us insights into the nature of the creator, of the almighty. And so in Matthew chapter 1, we see one of those names. And this name, as you will see, relates directly to the topic that we're talking about. The fact that God is in control. And he, he wants to be part of our lives. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. This is a prophecy. It says, she shall bring forth a son, this virgin, Mary, she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, another one of those prophecies that was being fulfilled here, spoken of hundreds of years before. 
but spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. When you look at religions of the world, pagan religions of the world, what are their gods like? What are their gods like? The gods of pagan religions are very hands-off, unless they're being vindictive. And there are lots of them. They often squabble against each other. Some of them are split personality kinds of gods, and they've got different aspects of personality represented by different gods. But these gods of the world aren't involved directly in the lives of people. Whereas our God is. In fact, one of his names is Emmanuel. God with us, not God against us, not God away from us, but God with us. It tells us about the relationship that he has and he wants to have with each of us. Turn back to Genesis chapter 16. And as you turn to Genesis 16, let me set the stage here. Sarah could not have, Abraham's wife Sarah was unable to have a child in her late age. And so she took her handmaiden, as you recall, Hagar, and she gave her to Abraham as a wife to conceive on her behalf. And Hagar did. She conceived with Abraham. She was with child. And apparently she began to be a bit full of herself. She thought of herself more highly than her mistress, Sarah, because Sarah was unable to have a child. Sarah didn't like that. So Sarah began to treat her harshly, we're told, probably beat her. And Hagar ran away. She fled from the presence of Sarah. That's the backstory here. Genesis 16 and verse 10, an angel appears to her. The angel of the Lord appears and says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so they shall not be counted as a, for a multitude And the angel of the Lord said to her, and he goes on and he tells her a little bit more, letting her know that she's not alone, that God is with her. What's interesting, after God makes these promises about her offspring, about what Ishmael will be like, verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. What did she call it? Him. El-Roi. El-Roi in the Hebrew. It means you are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. She ran away from her mistress, from Sarah. She was by herself, with child. An angel appeared to her and says, wait a second, you're going to be taken care of. In fact, why don't you go home? Go back to your, to your house. And I'm going to bless you. You will be blessed. And her conclusion was, this is the God who sees. The God who sees. God with us. He sees us. He sees what's going on in our lives. Not just in Hagar's life. In our lives as his first fruits. We are special to him. He knows what is going on. He is watching us. Romans chapter 8. We're going to go to a number of scriptures today that many of you know by heart. 
But we're going to do that intentionally because we need to review these scriptures from time to time. We should never doubt that God is in control in our lives. Romans chapter 8, you're familiar with verse 28, but brethren, let's read it together. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good for whom? All things work together for good. Sometimes we quote the beginning of the scripture and we don't finish it. It's not for everybody, is it? It's for those who love God, number one, and number two, those who are called according to his purpose. That's us. We love God. We are called according to God's purpose. Young people, God is calling you as well. You fit this scripture. And the promise is, the promise is that all things work to the good for these individuals, for us. Sometimes things happen and they're difficult. Sometimes things happen we can't have understood would happen. They blindside us, we say. They, they, they catch us off guard. Yet we are reminded in a promise from the Almighty God, in His inspired word, that these things will work to the good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. That's for us. Sometimes it's hard to understand that. Sometimes it's hard to believe that. When we're swimming upstream, it feels like, in difficult trials. But this is a promise from the Almighty. Psalm 18. Who is this Almighty? Who is this Eternal One? We could spend the entire sermon in the book of Psalms. But we're going to take just a little bit from Psalm 18. As David describes this God that he worships. Psalm 18 in verse 1. He says, I will love you, O Lord, or the eternal. I will love you, O eternal, my strength. Look at the descriptors. Look at the adjectives he uses to describe his God and your God. The Lord is my rock. Think about it. What is a rock? How would you describe a rock? How does that relate to God here, being a rock? A rock is solid, isn't it? It's unchanging. You can leave a rock, a big rock, and you can come back 20 years later, 50 years later, 100 years later, and it's, it's still there. It still looks the same. It won't have moved. You can count on it being there. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. Some of you have traveled and seen fortresses. What is one of the characteristics of a fortress? It has a wall or two around it to protect it. The idea with God being a fortress is he's a protector of us. When difficult times came in the Middle Ages, what did people do? Whole villages went inside the walls of the fortress of the castle. They closed the gates and they were protected there. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. My God, my strength. My strength. Our strength comes from the Lord, doesn't it? In whom I will trust. My shield, he's described as. And the horn of my salvation. Now that one we have a little bit more difficulty with today. Most of you have seen uh, Old West movies. 
You have to think about what, what the horn of a salvation means. You think about the cavalry coming in and blowing the horn. And what did, it, what did that horn do? It let the fighters know they had reinforcements coming, but it also let the enemy know that reinforcements were coming. And you better beware because the cavalry is coming. God is the horn of our salvation. David says, and he is my stronghold. My stronghold. A place where I go where I'm safe. David, in his Psalms, if you're familiar with the Psalms, and many of you are, over and over brings up these characteristics of the Almighty, of the Eternal. These characteristics of his strength and his ability to protect. The fact that he doesn't change. He's a stalwart. He's solid. He's defensive like a shield. This, is, this was David's God. Brethren, this is your God. This is your God. How real are these characteristics of your God? Let's look to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Can you think about events in your life where God has taken this form, where he's intervened in your life, where he's protected you from people, from situations, from all kinds of things? We need to remember our God. We need to remember how active he has been in our lives in the past because that same God wants to be active in our lives today, and oftentimes he is. Hebrews chapter 13. And let's start reading in verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. He says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what men can do to me. God promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And the conclusion here, quoting from the scripture, is the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what men can do to me. We've got to have that perspective. God is our helper. We can't fear what human beings can do to us, what life situations can do to us, what diseases can do to us. No, God is our helper. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He is wherever we are. He will be there for us. It's a promise. It's a promise. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. What do the promises of God mean to you, brethren? How real are they? How powerful are they? Can you trust them? Do you trust them? Let's read something that you know about our great God. In Titus chapter 1. 
in verse 1. We'll start reading. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge, the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with goodness or godliness. Verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. God promised eternal life before time began. It's our hope. But in verse 2, there's a short little part of a sentence here that I want to hone in on. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised. And you know this. You know that God cannot lie, but how deeply do you know he cannot lie? Our God, who gives us the promises that we have been reading, brethren, cannot lie. He has to fulfill these promises or he's a liar. He has to fulfill these promises. When he says, I am never going to leave you or forsake you, he has to fulfill that promise. Or he is not God. He's a figment, as Dr. DeGrasse Tyson would have pointed out. Our God, as you know, is not a figment. You wouldn't be sitting here today if he was. Because he's been real in your life, hasn't he? He's caused things to happen in your life where there is no other excuse. God's hand happened. I had a conversation with a church member this week who told me a story about a job offer. A job offer with a series of situations where doors could have been closed. One, two, three. In fact, um, the way this all played out, this church member gave the company plenty of opportunity to slam the doors in her face. But it didn't happen. God blew the doors wide open. And he did it in such a way that no one who's heard the story has any doubt that God's hand was directly involved. God is real. God wants to be involved in our lives. God, as we allow him, is in control. And we have to trust that. We have to know that. We have to tell ourselves that from time to time and remind ourselves because we forget. And we have an adversary One of his titles is the father of lies. And he loves to tell us lies. And he loves to try and help us forget that our father in heaven, who promises great and precious promises, cannot himself lie. Let's go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And we'll start reading in verse 9 here. Again, scriptures that you know, scriptures you're aware of, but we're we're going to use the principle, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, and stack these scriptures so that we're even more powerfully reminded about how real this God is that we follow, that it is worth following him wherever he leads us, and that he will not leave us alone. Luke 11, verse 9, says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. 
And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And then we're reminded about a character trait of our Father in heaven here. And he does it through looking at a similar character trait in human parents. He says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Now we've got little children in this congregation, many of them. If they go up to the food line after services for snack, and they ask one of the ladies up there for a cookie or for a banana or for a carrot or whatever's up there, I doubt very much one of these individuals is going to pull out a rock and say, here, chew on this. See how that works for your teeth. If a son asks for bread, would any father among you give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, a child who's hungry here, if he asked for a fish, would he give him a serpent? If he asked for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? How many human parents would do such a dastardly thing? Loving parents don't do that, do they? When you've got a hungry little child, what do you do? There's, there's, there's something that happens with really little children. It's, it's almost momentary where they go from being happy and all of a sudden they're in agony because they're so hungry. What does a loving parent, grandparent do when a child comes and says, I'm starving? You give them something to eat, don't you? Something that will take care of that pain in their belly. You don't pull out a poisonous snake or a poisonous bug, a serpent or a scorpion, and say, here, try not to get stung. What's God's point here? Verse 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? If we as human beings, as imperfect as we are, know how to lovingly fulfill a request, how much more our Father, who's there for us. Now this is interesting in the context of the Feast of Pentecost too, isn't it? A day that represents the first time that God poured out his Holy Spirit in mass on his church and made it available to subsequent generations and to us. And here we're told, how much more will our Heavenly Father give us his Holy Spirit if we ask? And we do that, don't we? We seek God. We, we choose his way of life. We commit to him at baptism. We ask, God, please grant me the gift of your Holy Spirit. And God gives it when we ask. And when we approach him in the right way, he wants to. He is the God who hears and the God who sees. Second Peter chapter 3. A few more scriptures here about this awesome God that we worship. This God who's real, he's alive. We read in Titus just a couple of minutes ago about how he promised eternal life from before time began. Why? Because God's whole point in bringing us into existence, you and I, human beings, 
is because he wants godly offspring. He wants a family. He wants us to be part of his family. We are so important to him. And he wants to be involved in our lives now as he brings us to the point where one day, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he can change us. He is, as you know, he's molding and he's fashioning us. He's preparing us for a glorious future with him. A future that will begin by working with all of humanity and helping them come into this same future. God has a plan. He wants to be involved in our lives because he made us so that he can be involved in our lives and so that we can be involved in his. God wants a family. Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Let me catch up with you. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his, concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not slack. He's, he doesn't tarry. He doesn't delay concerning his promise. He is going to fulfill his promise because he can't lie, as we have just reviewed. Because he wants all to come to repentance. And what's the result of repentance ultimately, brethren? You know, if we repent of our sins and our sins are washed from us, we are clean. And we can be changed into a member of the family of God. God wants that for all humanity. And he's not slack concerning that promise. He's going to make it happen. He's going to make it happen. He wants it to happen. He's involved in our lives he wants it to be. Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Satan puts thoughts in our minds at times, doesn't he? As the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the sons of disobedience, he broadcasts thoughts and feelings and ideas, and he broadcasts doubt from time to time, doesn't he? Don't raise your hand. But how many of us have had thoughts cross our mind that God doesn't hear my prayers? Or, God pays attention to other people, but he ignores me. Or, God doesn't care about me. Or, I'm not worthy for God to care about me. Thus, I'm not going to let him care about me. How many times have we had thoughts like that, especially when we're down? Philippians chapter 1. These are thoughts that Satan broadcasts. They're lies from the father of lies. God does hear our prayers. God wants to be involved in our life. God does care about us. God does want to be close to us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Philippians 1 and verse 6 gives us some more insight. He says, Paul writes here to the Philippians, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Once God starts something in us, brethren, he will finish it. That's a promise. He will not back off. He won't change his mind and say, oh, I think I made a mistake with that one. I'm going to throw them back. He won't back away and say, oh, you know what? They've used up too many of their requests for forgiveness. 
I can't forgive him anymore. And we know that's the example, isn't it, of the 70 times 7. The point of the, of the parable is God is always forgiving. As long as there's repenting going on, there's forgiving that's going to happen. But he who has begun a good work, brethren, when did God begin his good work in you? When did he begin it? I look around the room and I see some hoary heads and some heads that would be hoary if there was more hair on them. (laughs) My head is becoming hoary as well. When did he begin his good work in you? For those of you who are first-generation Christians, for many of you, it was before you ever came to church. It was years or decades before. And when you look back on your life, you see God working in your life and molding and fashioning you way before you came across a magazine or a telecast or a radio program. For those of us who were born in the truth, when did he begin working with us? For some of us, it was in the womb. That's when he began his perfect work. He's working his perfect work. And the promise is that he who has begun a good work in you will finish it until the day of Christ. To my knowledge, the trumpet has not yet sounded. I don't think we'll miss it when it does. Whether we're dead or alive, we'll hear the trumpet, won't we? God will finish his work in us. That's his promise. He doesn't start something and then take an opportunity away. Let's go to another scripture that throws uh, more light on this. Romans chapter 11. When God starts something, he will finish it. If If it's a project with the earth, if it's a project with the planets, if he begins it, he will finish it. If it's a project with human beings made in his image, if it's a calling that he gives to his first fruits, he will finish it until the day of Christ. That's the promise. Romans chapter 11 and verse 29. I love this scripture. Romans 11:29 for the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable, irrevocable. God cannot revoke his calling. He cannot take it back. That's what this word means. When he calls us, he asks us to come to him. He says, I want to work with you. I want to set you on the straight and narrow. I want you to be a child of mine. I want to place my Holy Spirit within you. And I, through you, want to help you grow and overcome. When he promises this, he can't take it away. Yes, we can turn our back on him. And turn our back on him for a time. But just because we turn our back on him doesn't mean he turns his back on us. He doesn't revoke that calling. To me, one of the best examples of this is Jonah. And let me talk to you about Jonah rather than turn to the book. Because I think most of you are familiar with the story. What did he do with Jonah? He worked with Jonah, didn't he? He told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? Jonah didn't like the Ninevites, by the way. These Assyrians were awful. They were bloody people, and they were destructive to Israel. Jonah would have been very happy had God just 
made Sodom out of Nineveh. But that wasn't God's plan, was it? And Jonah knew it. Jonah knew what we see at the end of the book. If you haven't read the book of Jonah for a while, you might want to do that again. But at the end of the book, we see Jonah knew God would relent. He didn't want to preach to the Ninevites and have them repent. He wanted God to condemn them. So he got a slow boat headed in the opposite direction from where he needed to go. And he, he hid down in the hull of this boat like you could really hide from God. You know, it's amazing. And I, I, I'm not going to throw stones because I know the way my mind works and my heart under the influence of Satan the devil works. We can convince ourselves of some pretty amazing things like we can hide from God. <clears throat> so what did Jonah do? He jumps on the boat. He heads in the opposite direction. God could have let him go, couldn't he? God could have said, you know what? I've got other prophets. I'm going to go to somebody else. See you later, Jonah. Uh, Good luck with the fish. But he didn't do that. He actually made this fish to get Jonah's attention. He didn't give up on Jonah, even though Jonah had given up on him. He worked with Jonah. And even after Jonah came back to Nineveh, and he prophesied to Nineveh, and he went up on this hill overlooking Nineveh, waiting for God to rain down fire and brimstone. He still has the wrong attitude. And he's sitting in the sun and he's miserable. And so God makes a weed, big, big weed grow up and shade him. And Jonah's happy and then God lets the weed die. And Jonah's angry again. God was still working with Jonah through the whole experience. Jonah, I would guess, Jonah might have felt a little bit alone in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, sloshing around in the nice, warm, moist, dark, fish market smelling, rotting fish market smelling area. He had three days of thinking to do. He might have felt alone, but he wasn't. Was he? God was with him the whole time. God had a plan for Jonah. I can't wait to meet Jonah one day. To me, Jonah had to have been, at least at the end of his life, one of the most humble people there were. Who would write a book, a story about themselves? (laughs) For all to read. Talking about bearing all. Yet he was willing to write that, apparently, for us. That story to me reminds me of how God doesn't give up. God is always involved. Even when we turn our back, there are people in this room, and if this sermon goes out, there are people who are here this sermon who turned their back on God. God's way of life for decades. And yet, here you are. Decades later, God did not leave you, did he? God did not forsake you. God was with you. God was working on you, prodding you. When we read the prophets, we see a God who begs his people to return to him because he loves us so much. This is the great God that we worship. 
One who gives us a calling and promises, I will never revoke that calling. Now, he doesn't want us to test that idea. He doesn't want us to go away and for him to have to work on us to try and bring us back. But he doesn't give something and then take it away from us. Brethren, if you're called, if God has begun a good work in you, he is not done and he won't be until the return of Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians. Another one of Paul's prison epistles. Paul is writing from prison. He's in chains. And yet, to me, this book right here, this short letter is probably one of the most encouraging letters in the Bible that Paul writes. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. <clears throat> Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Paul's saying here, you were with me when I was with you. And you worked hard while I was with you, but I'm not here anymore. I'm not here to help you, in a sense, work out your salvation. You've got to do it on your own. You've got to do your part. Work out your own salvation, but do it humbly, with fear and with trembling. I can't be with you anymore, but God can be in you. As we read a little bit earlier, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul's admonition for us is, work out your own salvation. Let God live in you to help you do this. In another one of Paul's letters in Galatians 2, verse 20, one of Dr. Mary's favorite scriptures, we're reminded that when we're baptized, we've got God's Holy Spirit, God lives in us through that Holy Spirit. And when we allow Him to do that, when we allow God to live in us through His Holy Spirit, He works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. We become vessels, we become instruments of His that He can mold and fashion and guide for His purpose. You know that. That's why he calls us. He wants to work his will in us. But he won't force us to do it. He wants us to come to him and say, here I am, Lord. Remember as young Samuel did. He was a little boy and he was asleep. And God called him in the middle of the night. And Samuel, probably three, four, five, six years old, jumps up out of bed, runs into the high priest's room, Eli's room, and says, okay, Eli, what do you want? Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Little Samuel trots off back to bed, gets in bed, and he hears again, Samuel. And he gets up and jumps up and runs into Eli's bedroom and says, here I am, Eli. What do you want? And Eli looks at him and go back to bed. I didn't call you. It happens again. He gets up and runs into Eli's room, and Eli says, if it happens again, respond, because it's the Lord. And the fourth time, God calls and Samuel says, here I am, Lord. Basically, what do you want? What can I do? God wants to work out his salvation in us. 
He wants us to be humble. He has a will for us. And he wants us to help him carry that will out. He wants to be involved in our lives. Brethren, we are each very important to God. And he's called us to succeed in this life and to overcome. God hasn't called us to fail. He's called us because he knows we will succeed if we do our part and stay close to him. He's our father in heaven and he wants us to be content. He wants us to be happy. He promises to not allow us to fail in this life if we do our part. You know, he sent his only begotten son to die for us so that we can overcome and we can be part of his kingdom. In the time that remains, let's take a look at a few examples of the early New Testament church. And let's look at how this God, who is God, who is alive and is well, and wants to be a part of our lives and is in control, let's look at how this God was in control of the lives of those in his early church, just as he wants to be involved in in our lives. Acts chapter 5. We see some powerful examples, brethren, and I encourage you, because I know the way our adversary works. Satan wants us to look at these as Bible stories. These are not Bible stories. Yes, they are stories that took place in the Bible, but these are real events. You know this, so I'm just reminding you of that. But we've got to remind ourselves not to fall in the trap of thinking that these are stories. Because they are so much more. These are insights into our very personal, loving Father in Heaven and older brother, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 5, we'll start in verse 17. And we'll read for a little while here together. Acts 5, 17. Then the high priest rose and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, And they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in the common prison. Now remember, this is only about a month and a half after Jesus Christ's crucifixion. This has not been long. These same individuals crucified the Messiah. They were the ones that called for his death. They were arrogant, bloodthirsty, deceived individuals. And they began to move in the same direction with the apostles. Verse 19. At night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and he brought them out and he said, he didn't say go home and hide. He said, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life or this way of life. They had just been thrown in prison by the Sadducees and the chief priests. God opens the prison doors for them. Miracle? Yes. Verse 21. When they had heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came in and they called the council together with the elders of the children of Israel and they sent to the prison to have them brought. What happened? Big surprise. Verse 22, when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, and they returned to report, saying, Indeed, we found the prison doors shut securely, the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found none inside. How did that happen? God reigns supreme. These were God's tools and instruments. He took care of them as he takes care of us. 
Verse 24, now the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things. They wondered what outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and are teaching the people. Verse 26, and the captain went with the officers and he brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in in his name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Peter said, verse 29, with the other apostles, We ought to obey God rather than men. What happened here? Human beings tried to squelch the gospel. They tried to get in God's way. And prison doors couldn't hold the apostles. Their God, brethren, your God, freed these men. He told them to go back about doing his business. They were released from prison. Ultimately, they're defended by Gamaliel. If we continue down here, verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. He wanted to speak and he wanted to be heard. Verse 35, he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up. Or Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the sentence and drew away many people after him. He perished, and all those who obeyed him were dispersed. Verse 38, now I say this to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for If this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing, just like the other ones did. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Wise advice. This apparently unconverted individual saw wisdom, and he realized, and he knew, there was a God who was a great God, and he did work in the kingdoms of men. This man was familiar with the book of Daniel. He was a teacher of the books of the law. And he knew that God had the capacity to do this if God wanted to. And so God did intervene in this situation. Acts chapter 12, let's look at another example. Acts chapter 12, we see the... The Pharisees are learning a few things here, perhaps from this jailbreak that we just read about. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now about that time, uh, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he arrested him, he put him in prison and he delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. A squad of soldiers here is four soldiers. So there's 16 men to guard unarmed Peter. A little overkill, do you think? There were reasons why he did this, though. 
Let's continue. Verse 5. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now, remember, a while back, there was this fellow Jesus Christ who was claimed to have been risen from the dead. He just disappeared. They weren't going to let this happen again. So they chained Peter while he's sleeping in the cell. Imagine imagine being in Peter's position, chained to two people, one on each side of you. You can't turn over because of the chains and because of these guys you're tethered to. But there's guards outside the door. There's 16 guards in all watching over him. <clears throat> Verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him at night, or stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side. <laughs> Wake up. You bang, bang. Knock, knock on, on his side. You've, you've probably been uh, woken up that way before. He struck Peter on the the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. What's interesting, God is a God of detail. He even encouraged him. The chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Gird up yourself, put your clothes on, tie on your sandals. So take the time to get dressed, put your shoes on. And he did so. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. Verse 9, So he went out and he followed him, and he did not know that this was done by an angel and that it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter's sort of in this fog, if you will. You've probably done that before, gotten up in the middle of the night, maybe gone to the bathroom, gone to the kitchen to get something to drink, wound up back in bed, and you think, did I just get up or did I dream that? Apparently Peter had a similar experience for a time. But verse 10 we see, when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city. So they're outside of the prison. They're at the city gate, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and they went into, went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he, he was totally conscious by this time. He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the Jewish people. Let register in your mind what God did here. Peter's thrown into prison and for all he knows, he's going to be crucified like Christ was. These were scary individuals who were ruling in the Sanhedrin. They were bloodthirsty individuals. They wanted power, and they weren't going to let anyone get in their way. They threw him into prison. They overstocked the guard so that he couldn't get away. And what happened? God didn't leave him or forsake him. Do you think that for a moment, for part of this time, Peter might have wondered, okay, is God going to leave me here? Has God forgotten me? I'm praying, God's people are praying, is God not hearing our prayers? I'm sure Satan threw that fiery dart his way. But what did God do? Apparently he let these guards fall into a very deep sleep. And he got Peter out of prison. And he wound up at the home of brethren. As you read if you continue with the story. 
God took care of Peter. God took care of Peter. First Corinthians chapter, Second Corinthians chapter eleven. <clears throat> One more example. A little bit later in the New Testament church, well into the ministry of the Apostle Paul here. But let's look at a couple things and review some scripture or some of the scripture together and think about Paul. Think about what Paul did. Think about the life that Paul had. <clears throat> Several Bible studies ago, Mr. DeSimone went through the travels of the Apostle Paul, showing how he worked all over the Mediterranean. But what does Paul say here? 2 Corinthians 11, let's start reading in verse 22. <clears throat> He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about the accusations that come against them. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure. So Paul is looking back on his life and looking at what he had to physically endure as a Christian to get to this point, as a first fruit to get to this point in his life. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths more often. He was left for dead on a couple of occasions. Verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, verse 27. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often. Brethren, what kind of trials do you have? You're not alone. You're not alone. In sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst and in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness, beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for, the church, for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast and the things which concern my infirmity. Paul was sick. He had a medical condition that God would not heal. And we can look down to chapter 12 and verse 7, and we'll read about this just a little bit. But before we do that, remember, God got Paul through all of these situations. Through all of them. He didn't die. While he was a night and a day in the deep. He didn't die when he was stoned and left for dead. He didn't die when he was beaten 39 times on five different occasions. God took care of him. God protected him. Yes, God let him suffer. But God never left him alone. The same God that we worship who promises to never leave us alone. Verse 7 of chapter 12 and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. This is his, his physical infirmity, his sickness. <clears throat> Some have hypothesized perhaps um, an eye condition, blindness or something like that. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Paul's looking back at his infirmity and realizing 
Maybe it's given to me to keep me humble. Because after all, he was involved in writing 14 books of the Bible. Moses, the one the Pharisees looked to, wrote how many? Five. Paul wrote almost three times as many books. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded to the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I would argue he probably was anointed on multiple occasions for this. Paul understood anointing. He taught anointing. What did God say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Continuing, Paul says, Therefore, most gladly I'll rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and his sicknesses, in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. Mr. Paul Shumway wrote an article in Living Church News a number of years ago by that title. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. When we're weak, when we don't have power of our own, isn't that when we are able to see God's hand more clearly in our own lives? Because we realize it's not me that's propping me up. It's God the Father that's doing that. It's our Lord Jesus Christ who's doing that. They are giving us the strength and the power. Brethren, God has powerful promises. We've seen his actions in the life of some of his leaders, some of his people in the early New Testament church. Let's look at Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Jeremiah 29. And verse 11. I love this scripture. We actually heard this scripture sung last week during special music. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. God says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I like the way that NIV puts it. It says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Brethren, God knows the thoughts and the plans that he has for you. Hopes for you. Things he wants to happen in your life. Things he's working out around you so that these events can take place. He wants us to walk forward in those. But he wants us to never forget that he is God. And he does have plans for us. Thoughts and plans of peace. He wants to bless us in those ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. One of those powerful promises, brethren. And in fact, this passage of scripture has three promises in it. Three promises that our God who cannot lie has to fulfill. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That's one of them. It's a reminder. 
The trials that we experience are not unique to us. We're not the only one. That's what this means. We're not the only one. There are others. We may not know them. We may not know of them. But there are others. But God is faithful who, number one here, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. This is a promise from him. He won't tempt us. He won't allow Satan to tempt us beyond what we can handle. The the, the truth is, though, we don't know what our limits are. We only think we do. And often God will push us beyond what we think are our limits so that he becomes more real. He won't tempt us beyond what we're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God will make a way. He promises that. He doesn't say when. He doesn't say where. He doesn't say how. But he promises that he will make a way because he is our God and he is there with us. Isaiah 57, final scripture here. Isaiah 57. Just a perspective to keep in mind. As we think about how God is with us, he knows the thoughts and the plans that he has for us. That he is with us. He does take care of us. He does that even in death, brethren. Isaiah 57, verse 1. We're told that the righteous perishes and no one takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers what? That the righteous is taken away from the face of evil. Paul acknowledged in 1 Thessalonians 4 that even for us, even for those of us who are called, death is difficult. But we see here in Isaiah 57, God is even involved in that. For those who he's called, for the saints, God removes the righteous from the face of evil. Death, going to sleep, is a blessing for those to whom it happens, even though we who are alive struggle with it. God removes people from difficulty sometimes through death. And of course, we know that the next second of their consciousness, boom, they're going to be awake with a new body, with no more suffering. Brethren, we worship a wonderful, merciful God who has personally called each and every one of us and who is preparing us for his kingdom. Young people, that includes you. He is the God who sees me. The God who sees us. The one who looks down from his heaven above, from his throne, and he sees our lives and he watches what happens. God is there. He is Emmanuel. God with us. And he is with us. He is with you. He is our strength and our high tower and our shield and our protector. He is the God who works in us to will and to do. And he is the God who has begun a good work in us and will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is the God who promises to never, ever leave us or forsake us. And he is the God who cannot lie. Brethren, it is Satan, the devil, the father of lies, who wants us to believe that God is hands-off and distant, who doesn't care and doesn't hear our prayers. Nothing could be further from the truth. Brethren, our great God has placed in earnest a down payment of his very own spirit within us, the essence of himself. 
as an assurance that his promises will be fulfilled. Brethren, you are his first fruits. We are his first fruits. A unique and a special creation unto him that he is building now. Brethren, when it comes to our lives, we must never forget that the great God of the universe, our very own personal Father in heaven, is ultimately and always in charge. Please never forget, your God is in charge.